Good morning. I am Jan Fran and welcome to The Briefing, the podcast that gets you up to speed every morning with the news that you need to know. And this Monday, the 10th of August, I am joined by Annika Smethurst. Good morning, Annika. Good morning, Jan. How are you this Monday morning? A bit cold in Canberra, always cold in Canberra, That's but the... ready to hear the news. It's the story of Canberra, isn't it? <laughs> well, a little bit later in the show, we're taking a look at what's happened to terrorists in this pandemic. We've all had to pivot during this time. How are they pivoting? Are they working from home? What kind of attacks should we be worried about now, if any? Even though... There's been quite a lot of calls by terrorists to uh, go and do things like lick. If you have coronavirus, they say go and lick federal law enforcement's uh, doorknobs on their buildings and spread it around. It doesn't sound quite as effective as, say, stealing an aeroplane or wearing a suicide vest, but whatever floats your boat, I guess. No, it doesn't sound too effective, does it? And there's, you know, questions around how much we should actually be worried about terrorists walking around licking doorknobs. And look, that's what Tom and I are going to find out a little bit later on the show when we brief you on terrorism during this pandemic. The family of an Australian toddler killed in Tuesday's explosion in Beirut is planning to return home as furious protesters continue to rally in Lebanon. Now, Western Australian Premier Mark McGowan says the family has got relatives in the state. The family have uh, family in Western Australia and uh, they'll be looking to come back to Western Australia at some point in time. Obviously, uh, health and police will have to manage that process of them coming back here and how uh, they isolate and uh, what arrangements are put in place. To you. Old Isaac Olas was among at least 158 people killed in Tuesday's blast. Now, overnight, Australia joined an international aid conference to help Lebanon, which was already on the brink of economic collapse before the explosion rocked its port. So we've seen some pretty incredible scenes over the weekend of the protests. Emmanuel Macron was there. Jan, this is something that's close to your heart. Tell us what you think of what's happening over there. Well, I mean, it's it's been incredibly devastating to watch the whole thing unfold over the last week. We saw thousands of people take to the streets um, over the weekend. Uh, hundreds, up to 700 people were injured in clashes with authorities and law enforcement and, and fighting between the different factions. Um, so unfortunately, the blast, while it was devastating and catastrophic and has left 300,000 people homeless, it seems to be just the beginning of unrest in the country uh, because it's it's suffering from what could arguably be called its worst economic crisis in in modern times in 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 the country's modern history. So I think over the next few days and weeks and and months, um, we'll probably see people continue to take to the streets in Lebanon, and and I think there's just a lot of uncertainty over how that will end. They're obviously calling for. The entire parliament to resign. They've they've got a chant um, in Arabic, "Kulluniani kullun," which means all means all. Everyone means everyone. They want everyone to go. That is how much dissatisfaction there is with the country's leaders. And Victoria has announced a $60 million mental health package after a sharp increase in the number of people struggling to cope, especially young Victorians. Yeah, the number of people admitting themselves to hospital for mental illness is up more than 23% on last year, while 33% more young people are being admitted 
for self-harm. Terrible stats there. Look, Mental Health Minister Martin Foley is hoping the money will take the pressure off the hospital system, which is obviously struggling at the moment too. The object of this package is to make sure that we shift that focus immediately and sustain it over time into more community settings. Look, mental health, I think, is something that we are all going to be struggling with in this pandemic. And if you feel like you need help, please know that Lifeline provides confidential crisis support and it is accessible 24 hours a day. It's on 13 11 14. In the meantime, in Victoria, some, I suppose you can call it bittersweet news. Uh, the state recorded 394 new cases. It is still a high number, but it is the lowest case recording in 11 days. Unfortunately, though, the state did record its highest death toll yet at 17. After a controversial start, one of the country's top doctors said the COVID Safe app is finally working as it should. Huzzah! After many, many months, here it is. Uh, Deputy Chief Medical Officer Dr Nick Coatesworth says that it helped trace significant transmission in Sydney's west and that two out of the 544 people that the app tracked down later tested positive. And that's where COVID Safe comes into its own because that's where you're in touch with people who are strangers, potentially for prolonged periods of time, and it's very difficult to identify who you were in touch with in the past 14 days. Yeah, look, it's worth noting here too that those were people human contact tracers couldn't locate. So that's really where we need the app to pick up the slack, I mm. guess. Dr Coatesworth believes recent updates to its algorithm may have made it a lot more effective. See, this is the news that I like to hear. Yeah, because it, it just goes to show that, you know, the thing that we created to do a job is actually doing the job that Australians paid $2 million for, which $2 million of taxpayer money is not that much if this app is effective and, and seemingly it is. It's been downloaded 7 million times since April. And of course, the more people who download the app, the more likely it is to work. So it's good news that it's managed to trace people that human contact tracers can't get onto. And if you haven't downloaded the app already, maybe you might be buoyed to do so by this story. There you go. All right, Annika, we will catch you tomorrow. Tom is jumping into the studio in a second for the briefing. Hey, Tom here with you. Jan, think back to five years ago. Do you remember the big threat that was freaking us all out then? Another American has been beheaded by the radical ISIS militants. You are looking at the Manchester Arena in England where a suicide bomber set off an explosion last night at an Ariana Grande concert. ISIS has now claimed responsibility. Paris under attack. This is the third major attack that ISIS has claimed responsibility for. Police are called to the Lint Chocolate Cafe in downtown Sydney. 17 hostages inside. ISIS released a statement officially claiming responsibility for this atrocious terrorist attack. Wow, that is a very stark reminder of how scary and how present the threat of terrorism was in our lives. So let's find out what terrorists are up to now during the pandemic? Are they more or less of a threat? Yeah, so you've got Islamic terror, obviously, which we heard some of there. But what about the other main threat as well? Far right white supremacist terrorists. Right now, the world's diving into a big recession. And it was actually the depression of the 1930s that led to the rise of the Nazis. Yeah, so the conditions are rife. 
Greg Barton is one of Australia's leading experts on Islamic terrorism. He is a professor of global Islamic politics at Deakin University. Now, he says that there's actually been an uptick in attacks uh, in parts of Iraq during this pandemic. As an insurgency, IS has been conducting nighttime raids across Nineveh province and Anbar province in the north and west of Iraq. It's increased that and it's, it's taken some more brazen attacks uh, during daylight hours because of the reduction in security personnel. So it's it's exploiting a weakness, which is a typical of an insurgency. Greg, if you look back at the way al-Qaeda built up uh, and then became a target for the West and then Islamic State then built up several years later, is what's happening now, um, particularly this uptick in attacks that you've mentioned in northern Iraq, is this exactly the kind of scenario that could see the beginning of a massive resurgence of Islamic State? Yeah, Tom, I think it's something we have to, it's a threat we have to take seriously without being paranoid. Groups like this are most effective when they've got a real presence as an insurgency and they become parasites in society. They can do that best when you've got a breakdown of governance. So to the extent you've got governments struggling and, and ungoverned zones, which we still have around Mosul, of course, and of course they're exploiting that situation now because there's still a lot of grievances for, for Sunni communities. Uh, the whole of the Middle East is under stress from COVID. It, it, you know, just as it weakens the individual body, it weakens the body politic. And that gives opportunities for for opportunistic um, groups, sort of this, this parasites, these infections in society. They, they don't do well in strong societies. And the West, of course, is uh, preoccupied with COVID and preoccupied with other issues and fatigued when it comes to thinking about international terrorism. So all of that you know, could well be a, a perfect storm in the years to come. I certainly think at the very least we're going to see a steady strengthening of these insurgencies, both the IS one we're talking about, but also al-Qaeda and its many affiliates. We're seeing them mm. reactive now across West Africa, for example. Uh, that's not going to go away, okay. sadly. So that was Greg Barton painting the picture of what's been happening in northern Iraq in the vacuum created by the pandemic. Let's find out what that means for us here in Australia and more generally how the pandemic has changed the threat of attacks on Western soil. In the short term, it's probably gone down in many places, especially in the West. Um, you know, terrorists want to kill a lot of people. There just aren't a lot of people out and about. Uh, there aren't as many crowds as they, use, as they usually are. It's a little bit more difficult. That was Gary Ackerman. He is a US terror expert who wrote a paper in June essentially about terrorists pivoting the way that they operate in this pandemic. One potential uh, a case that was interdicted, a plot in the US, in Missouri, where a, a person, a, right, a far-right uh, extremist wanted to attack a, a medical facility, a hospital, um, wow. because it had so many COVID patients. So there are some exceptions, but overall, you know, during a period where there's a pandemic, where the headlines are dominated by the pandemic, there's not a lot of people using public transportation, et cetera, et cetera. It's probably not the best time if you're a terrorist in the West to, to sort of launch major attacks. It's probably better from your point of view to wait until things get back to normal and then and then launch your attacks. So spend this time kind of planning and, mm. and plotting. However, there's a bit of a, a difference in other countries, uh, especially in countries in places like Northern Africa um, and parts of Southeast Asia and the Middle East. There, it's a different story because there, a lot of the 
uh, troops, a lot of the government forces are dealing with with, uh, the coronavirus at the moment. So they're not attacking the terrorists. They're not guarding villages as they used to be. So in certain places like in West Africa, North Africa, there's actually been an uptick in terrorist attacks because the government forces are occupied with COVID and have often been moved to to places, to large cities and leaving parts of the countryside, you know, with less, less guarded. So in those places, it's actually gone up. So a range of impacts there, potentially less risk on Western soil, but a rise in some Middle East and African countries where governments are busy dealing with the pandemic. Yeah, Gary's also been looking at the ways that terrorists are innovating during this time, even using the virus as a potential weapon. The thing about bioterrorism is in the past, it hasn't been very popular. Only a few terrorists have been interested and they haven't been very successful at all. However, from a terrorist group now who's looking around the world and sees, look what one little virus is doing. Nobody can clearly stop this virus. It's causing the whole world to shut down and killing hundreds of thousands of people. It starts, maybe they kind of recalculate a little bit and say, we need to look a little bit closer at this whole bioterrorism. Thing. Right. So They're like, oh, well, this, bring- is, this is working. We should do this as well. Yeah, they should like that. We need to pay more attention to this because look at this. It's look what it's doing. Imagine if we could could have used this in some way. So, so in that sense, there might be some groups who start taking a you know are, are kind of a little bit more attracted to it. However, there might be some other groups um, out there who who actually want to use the virus itself as a a weapon in of itself. So at the moment, the coronavirus itself, if, if I go and I, I have coronavirus and I start infecting other people, guess what? Nobody's going to notice because it's happening anyway. There's a lot of idiots out there spreading the coronavirus who don't care about anybody else. And extra terrorists doing it's not going to make a big difference, even though there's been quite a lot of calls by terrorists to uh, go and do things like lick, if you have coronavirus, they say go and lick federal law enforcement's uh, doorknobs on their buildings and spread it around. But anyway. Wait, are you suggesting that that is a bona fide terrorist strategy to lick doorknobs in the hope of infecting people with coronavirus? um, Especially... Yes, especially on the far right, and there's been some indications on the Islamists as well have said basically go to law enforcement buildings or go to government buildings and start, you know, um, you know, licking and spitting on on in elevators and elevator buttons and licking doorknobs. But I mean, how how seriously should we actually take um, that threat? Is that, that something that yeah? How seriously should we take that kind of thing? Not seriously at all. That is not a big difference. It will not make any difference. They are already you know, millions of cases around the world, a couple of terrorists spitting on things are not going to change anything. So that's not going to be a problem. In the long term, it's not going to be a problem because once there's a vaccine, then it, you know, solved the problem. They can't use coronavirus anymore. The one problem terrorists actually using coronavirus might actually have for, for us, the one threat they might pose is in if we get to the to a kind of middle phase where the initial wave of the of the coronavirus has ended and a lot of countries have it back under control. And I'm looking at a country like New Zealand for now, for mm. instance. Now, if in that situation a terrorist managed to get coronavirus and started spreading, they could kick off a new wave in a country once they've got it under control. The idea of doorknobs being licked is terrifying wow. to me. And disgusting. And disgusting, a number of things. But Gary's research actually says that That's not the main concern. It's actually the long term that we need to be worried about here. Yeah, particularly because of the economic fallout of the pandemic. In the long term, though, that's where the real danger dies. 
And I think that is because um, a lot of the terrorists during this time and extremists are using this time now to really ramp up their propaganda and their recruitment and their extremist mes messaging. And that is because there's a lot of people who are stuck home with nothing better to do. So they kind of have a captive audience. There's also a lot of people who are uncertain, anxious, who have also shown that their government can't protect them in many cases uh, or isn't doing enough. It, it, it arguably makes people more susceptible and they're a captive audience. So what a lot of uh, extremist groups are doing now is really trying to zero in and broaden their message and, and zero in on people's uncertainties and anxieties. In, in a couple of years, it might be long past the pandemic, that's when the chickens will come home to roost in, in, in a sense. And uh, a lot of the investment that the terrorists are making now in, in recruitment, uh, we'll start seeing uh, problems then. So, Gary, given that long-term risk of terrorism exacerbated by dissatisfaction with governments and very challenging economic conditions, which ideologies do you think will tank hold? Which will be most dangerous? Will it be um, the Islamic extremism we've seen or will it be the other most well-known kind, which is the far-right extremism? Unfortunately, the answer is yes to all of them, unfortunately. Both. We are mm. seeing from the Islamic extremists are, are saying that, you know, the, this is a uh, test from God or a punishment from God to, for unbelievers who are not following the right path. So they're using that kind of argument. Um, the far right is showing that this is this is all caused by foreigners. Um, in the U.S., if they're blaming the Chinese, or they're blaming, uh, you know, that, that old trope from the from the the Nazi Party that sort of the foreigners are evil and spread disease. So you've got that. Um, you've got from the left now. This is uh, this shows that capitalist society is incapable of dealing with new threats and is incapable of protecting its people, um, and it just exists to oppress the the people. So each group is making their own arguments and each mm. group is rallying their supporters and is actually seen to be grown. So that was Gary Ackerman from Albany University in the state of New York. And Jan, that point about the long-term economic problems fueling terrorism really raises the stakes on our leaders to get the economic response right. Yeah, I think it raises the stakes on all global leaders, really, because you do need a global counter-terrorism strategy. And right now... The world is just not in a place to coordinate on this type of issue because everybody is so concerned about their own country and what this pandemic is going to mean for them in 5, 10, 20 years' time. But not to worry too much about 5, 10, 20 years' time. We're talking about tomorrow, where we're going to take a look at the fun police on the briefing. Are COVID marshals necessary at weddings? That's the question that we are asking on tomorrow's podcast. And remember, subscribe to us at Podcast One Australia or wherever you get your podcasts, if you haven't done so already. And if you like the show, the best way to show your support is to tell us, obviously, love to hear from you, but also to tell a friend or to tell your mum or to tell your nan or to tell your neighbour. Tell whoever it is that you know and stay in touch with us on social media, of course, at The Briefing Podcast. Talk to you soon. A Podcast One production.